Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. The pandemic laid bare two painful primary care facts, or really more like bank heists is more accurate, and one salvation, one really good bit of news. Number one, the CARES Act was sold by two hospital lobbies as the $175 billion bridge to hospital solvency. The Speaker of the House even accurately dubbed it the Marshall Plan because it was actually bigger in real dollars than the real Marshall Plan. What was undisclosed to Congress is that, and they voted nearly unanimously on two different bills, were two simple omissions. Number one, CMS agreed to lightly audit any COVID admissions in the month of March when it got voted in. Miracle of miracles, two reported flu season admissions dropped to zero. I mean, zero. Now, flu is a bread and butter revenue source for healthcare every October. Every PCP that's listening knows this. Every hospital employee that's listening knows flu season's very important. So the takeaway, it's like the IRS saying, no audits for two years, folks. It's a massively scaled upcoding and fraud in normal times, but when the CMS looks the other way, maybe it's not. Well, fraud is the exact right word here, but they'll never be audited, so... If you don't have a posse, there is no crime, I guess, right? So we will not audit fraud, basically, is what the regulators that we pay to protect citizens and taxpayers said to the regulated. So the CMS is either complicit or dumb as a rock or both. I can't think of any other reason why the IRS would say no audits for two years to all taxpayers. We're an emergency, but that's exactly what CMS did. So the marshal, secondly, doubled the reserves of the bigs, not the rurals. The rurals have been barely hanging on by their fingernails for decades now, but for the bigs, and when a remote rural dies, so will the county population we now know. You can't give birth, adios young people, and you can't give onsite acute care, adios silver hairs. Death spiral is the word for what happens to a county when it loses its community hospital. So unfortunately, the County population has to move closer to the big noisy city and away from the starry, starry night sky and the fireflies in the backyard life. But the bulk of the Marshall Plan went to the bigs, not to the rurals. And to their immense credit, HCA, we give a hat tip to because they returned all $6 billion of their Marshall Plan dollars, as did one smaller hospital and a bunch of tiny hospitals. So. The Marshall Plan is bigger in real inflation-adjusted dollars than the actual Marshall Plan that gave us world peace and trading partners of former enemies. But it was based on a lie, this Marshall. It was never needed. It doubled the reserves, and we know that now. I said that earlier. I got spares repeating. So how was that $175 billion used 
Well, they doubled down, as I said, the reserves, but they also bought 108,000 primary care practices during 12 months of the pandemic, mostly primary care. It was double that probably over the 24 months. We only know the 12 month reporting period. So it's likely way more than 108,000. And never before in history have a group of monopolies and duopolies bought 20% of all the primary care referrals. The independent PCPs with no strings attached federal funds that came out of our pockets. So double down the practice ownership in the stubborn independent South, read Texas, Georgia, and Florida. So this was basically a sugar daddy paid historic buying spree and was darkly opportunistic. This lavish buyout fund was based on a massive lie and it scores a zero for winners, except for the suits and the shareholders, but all the losers would be included. The docs and the nurses, the consumers, community, costs, outcomes, and employers all lose when independent PCPs disappear from the face of the earth. So hardly a debate there. I don't think many people would want to take the other side of that debate. So I've asked big hospital defenders to come on the show, but nobody will come on the show to talk about how wonderful hospitals are for doing these kinds of things. And second sad fact, because I said there were two, is fee-for-service primary care is a wheezing dinosaur. Volume-dependent care has forced reimbursements to near zero in the pandemic, yet doctor and key staff salaries mostly remain for independent PCPs. You cut off revenue for three to five months, but have to keep your labor costs steady. Good luck with that, employers. We all know what that would do to any of us. Fee-for-service, if we're defining it as volume-centric, is still 90% of healthcare today, despite lots of value versus volume, hot air and hua and gatas and needstas and haftas on Zoom panels. But the truth is it's mostly the home territory of hospitals. They rely on volume. Advanced primary care that works where everyone wins looks like two models funded by self-insured employers, which is 146 million strong, we're talking to a guest today that's specialist in this. And the second would be subscription-based care like direct primary care. There's 20 million members across the country that have CEOs have appeared on the show. So examples of that would be Premise Health, Eversight Health, Marathon Health, Medici, Crossover, Health 98.6. And if every one of the four major retailers and five bukas are now offering employers virtual primary care, as is Teladoc 360, that's a pretty good indication that the employer is a new target for the new players that are in primary care. Well, and let's talk about what's been funded by CMS and some bigs is full risk ACOs. We don't know how many members belong to those. And when I say full risk, I'm talking about former guests like ChinMed and Catalyst Health Group in North Texas, who are pretty rare. I'd say 95% or they would actually tell me that 95% of the ACOs go partial risk. So those are two models that seem to place the consumer first and aren't shy about capitated risk. Those are two models that did well in the pandemic and survived nicely because they had a steady income stream, no matter what the volume was. And I would say those two models are the confident dude at the school dance when 95% of the people are afraid to go out and ask somebody to dance. So who wins with these two? Well, every loser I mentioned above in the buying spree fallout. The winners are the docs and the nurses and the consumers and the community, the costs, the outcomes, and the employers who fund all of this. And of course, the shareholders win too. So DPC and full risk of VBC value-based care 
are both part of a future where everyone wins. Today, we're going to welcome back a guest, Peter Hayes, who is currently the president and CEO of the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine. Peter, we're glad you're back. Oh, glad to be here and to continue the conversation. Yes, we did this because we didn't get to learn about the Alliance, nor did we get to hear Peter's dream of what the ideal plan would look like. So we wanted to give another shot at this. So do you have any comments before we get going here? No, I enjoyed your, your lead in and spot on. I think, you know, we'll probably be talking about some of those things in our conversation as, as we're having now. Look, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you, why would CMS turn away from auditing anything COVID? Do you think that they just made a desperation Hail Mary? Or, I mean, why would somebody say, whatever you want to do, hospitals? I've, I've just never seen that. And I'm not, you've seen, you've been watching this for 30 years. I've been watching it for maybe six. What do you think happened? One thing you didn't mention, the other thing CMS is doing is the hospitals are insisting that they back off on some key patient safety measurement things, things like, you know, falls in the hospitals or preventable infections. So you can ask the same question, why would we give hospitals a buy on critical things that affect the quality and patient safety of some of our most vulnerable people of our population. So it's, and I think part of the answer becomes, it was part of your lead in, you know, you have health systems and health plans and the entrenched stakeholders, are, are they really getting too big to fail? They have incredible political and lobbying pressures that are really protecting their sort of status quo. They, they are doing, for the most part, they're doing very well in the system as it exists. And as you mentioned, those that are paying for the system aren't very happy. The, you know, the nurses and primary care docs, the providers aren't very happy and patients aren't very happy, but shareholders are. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it's the movie, follow the money. All you need to do is who has the influence, who has the power. And that may explain it. Certainly on the patient safety things, we do know that hospital patient safety during COVID really deep. Increase. There are many more incidents that shouldn't have occurred. And, you know, it is at a time where that we want our hospitals to be at the safest at that period of time. So all of those things are troubling. Chris Deacon, who's a friend of the show, and I know as a friend of yours, was on LinkedIn this week showing us a quote from a CEO who said that the master plan, and I don't know why he would say this publicly, but the master plan is to have five big monopolies in the hospital systems. That's always been the plan, always will be the plan. Uh, it's never going to be about lowering costs. It's always going to be a rising cost problem. Uh, he didn't say problem. It's an opportunity from his perspective. But how would that work out in Maine if you had a monopoly running entire state or certainly metros? I mean, I mean, Maine, Maine's a great microcosm of that. I mean, we virtually have three health systems, but two of those health systems have a dominant market share. I mean, they're 60 to 80% of the market, they own the physicians, they own a lot of the facilities. So we are sort of facing that. And a good example of that is one of the health systems just announced publicly that they're refusing to take Anthem as you know their subscribers unless they are, are paid what they want to get paid going forward. So I think you can see it being played out. But it's just, it's just not the health systems. When you look at it, you have the Buka plans, Four plans or so that own most of the market share in health insurance. 
you have three or four PBMs that own most of the market share in the prescription drug business and distribution. And similarly, you'll have, you know, a few health systems that own the dominant shares. It's, it's, it's a, you know, they are virtual monopolies and lessons learned from the past is monopolies can do, they can bring some efficiencies, but they also need to have appropriate sort of regulation and oversight. You know, you left out GPOs. Y'all are a purchasing organization, but you're one of the good guys. A GPO, the 80 to 85% of all hospital supplies are ordered by the three big GPOs that are controlled yeah. by the, you know, the BUCAs, just like they control the PBMs. And surgeons complain they can't get the tools they need or the devices they, they want. It's like a sharpshooter and they're saying, use the BB gun that we bought you, Department of Defense says. They're not getting the tools they know that work best. And from what we understand, there are significant pay or play site type arrangements where those GPOs are actually getting the manufacturers of the supplies to have to pay to have a seat at the table. So it's just that the incentives and the revenue flows don't always work in the best interests of, of the end user who is the patient. Let's talk about what a purchasing alliance does for the employers in Maine. And there's dozens of purchasing, if not hundreds, over a hundred that I counted, but y'all as a purchasing alliance were initially set up to sort of as a brain trust, but also to buy healthcare more efficiently. What more do y'all do than that? Because I think y'all do a lot more than that. Well, actually, you know, and I think, you know, it's sort of that joke about if you've talked to one employee, you've talked to one employer. If you've talked to one purchasing alliance, you've probably talked to one. There's similar organizations in almost every state. I mean, our entity, the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine, but it started about 30 years ago. And when it started, it came together out of this, this sort of, actually it was sort of a social responsibility. There are a bunch of employers, both public and private. So we're made up of, of private employers, but we have almost you know, the majority of public pay. We have the state of Maine employees. We have the teachers that are in a trust for the state. We have the municipalities that are in a trust. We came together saying as purchasers, we want to better understand how we can make healthcare better and safer for all of Maine. We, we weren't interested in cost shifting. We were really interested in how can we use information to try to make healthcare a little bit better, whether it's an employee or whether it's someone on Medicare or Medicaid. And we started by really trying to focus on quality. And a real great example of it is when we started, that's about when LeapFrog was launched, probably about 15, 20 years ago. And just to jump in, LeapFrog is a quality metrics company that rates hospitals on infection rates and complication rates and readmission rates. So they, they score hospitals. Yeah, they actually score hospitals very simple. It's just like your report card in grade school. They have a A, B, C, D, F rating system. And it's really remarkable. If your hospital gets you know, an A or B rating, you have an 88% lower chance of having a fatality for any reason you walk through the hospital door. If, if you're a D or F hospital, it's like 92% higher chance of fatality. It is a huge difference. When we started in Maine, they came out and actually we had some of the more unsafe hospitals in the country. And we came together as purchasers, public, private. At that point, I was at a private supermarket. I partnered with the state of Maine and we said, hey, look, we're, we're gonna create incentives. We're gonna say to our members and families, 
if they go to the safer hospitals, we will waive co-pays and deductibles. And that announcement in the marketplace created the hospitals that didn't have that safety grade and, and, you know, up their game. And actually Maine last year was just presented by Leapfrog, our governor. Maine has had the safest hospitals in the country for the past decade. So we really found a way where we could use our purchaser voice to really focus on how do we make healthcare a little bit better. So it wasn't about cost shifting to someone else. It was trying to find a root cause or a root problem that we could do something about. And that's sort of our heritage. We've always looked at quality and worked on quality. We had everybody under the tent. We had not only purchasers, but we had all the stakeholders. We had health systems, we had health plans. As long as we were talking about quality, it was really hard for anybody to say they, they didn't support that. And, and we're on part of the value journey like everybody else. When we started, when we made some progress on quality, we started then asking about, well, why are these, why are these unwarranted variations in cost and quality exist in our marketplace? And that's when the conversation started to change. So we've been around about 30 years, 20 years of that. And actually, you'd be interested in this. We actually started early on measuring outcomes by primary care, just as you suggested in your intro. We really recognize the importance of primary care. We really tried to identify who were the top quartile of primary care docs in the state. We didn't have any measurements. We actually asked the primary care docs to step up and you know develop some metrics they wanted to be measured on, which they did. We called them providers of distinction. And we actually, again, much like we did for hospitals, we created incentives that if, if members went to the providers of distinction, um, you did get a lower, instead of a 20% copay, it would be 10%. And again, the, the intent was for those, those physicians that were in that, they were going to get a bonus at the end of the year. It got to the point in time where we were going to pay out the incentive bonuses to the primary care docs that made that distinction. And they actually said, no, what we want you to do is take out a full page ad in the paper across the state and say, and just, and just advertise who are the providers of distinction. Don't say about anybody that's not. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things we try to do to move the bar, kind of float the boat for everybody. When we started to get to the cost side, it really changed. So we are now a purchaser alliance. We just have purchasers at the table. And we're not mandating that anybody has to do anything that we select. We're trying to find solutions in the marketplace that are not being offered by the entrenched stakeholders and make that as an option for our members to either use or they don't. We, you know, we're pretty clear about, you know, we don't force the hands, what we're trying to do. And actually it's really designed for smaller employers. All of us know that in, in a large, in a marketplace, the larger employers usually get a significant discount for admin fees and other things. What we're trying to do is aggregate our purchasing power. So the same price the larger employers are getting can be passed on to the smaller employer. So they actually can get a seat at the table at the same cost as others, so it doesn't become cost prohibitive. One red so, carpet for all. So primary care has in a giant land grab right now between four monster retailers we all know about, between the five Bukas, between the Teladoc and their competitors that are now no longer a platform, but they're also going after employers. And Teladoc, the first week they announced their Teladoc 360, announced four uh, 11 Fortune 100s that joined that was part of their Rolodex already. So PCPs, what's changed for states like Maine and certainly New Jersey, who's done this, 
Colorado has done this, Montana did this, is that we now have primary care scaled nationally. So we have a dozen players or so that are scaling either regionally or nationally who are funded by private equity or venture capital, we could call it, and can now offer a statewide solution in the small towns and the larger towns. Has that been an added bonus to employers in Maine to have these companies that can now serve an employer who, like Hanneman, I'm assuming is not just a grocery store in Maine. I'm assuming they overlap into their neighboring states. Yeah, I mean, Hanford has changed. It's like the rest of our world. They were locally owned for a long time, and then they were bought out by some European supermarket chains. It's changed hands a couple times. You know, I'm excited about what you're describing that is happening in primary care. The issue we are facing in Maine, which I, I, I suspect is not much different than other places, when I said there were a couple health systems that were dominant, they own 80% of practices. They own the primary care practices as well. There's a real access issue. And the primary care docs that are serving sort of some primary care docs that are serving with that environment are concerned because there are pressures about certain referrals. There are pressures about certain volumes. Of course. Um, you know, there, there's real restrictions on how much time they get to spend with patients. So, you know, if there's any silver lining to COVID, you, you talked a little bit about the finance side. What I'm excited about is what COVID showed that gee, about 85% of primary care can be delivered virtually. It doesn't need to be tied to brick and mortar. So you can actually expand access. I think that's exciting. And I think it's exciting that a lot of our health systems, as you had described up front in themes, our health systems in our state, and I think this is echoed pretty much across the country, are totally adverse to taking at any at-risk contracts. I mean, they will take upside risk, but they're not interested in taking downside risk. And what I find interesting about the, the new entries is that they're doing primary care on a capitated basis. I understand that primary care docs like that model better. Um, but they're also willing to take risks that they actually can bend the cost trend curve downstream from their offices. Their value prop is we're going to get people in. We are going to make sure we get them to the high value providers downstream. And we're not just going to get them in to feed the revenue streams of, of someone else downstream. But you've got the same issue with private equity. And that's, you know, it's it, are, are you trading one known for another unknown, but at least competition and different models are needed. So I think that's all a positive thing. Well, what ChenMed and Catalyst and others that are ACOs have done is they are focused on the senior market. And by focusing on the senior market, you have to deal with chronic care, which is going to be 85 to 90% of an employer's spend is those 10% of the folks that are driving up the cost. And, and that's what, again, ACOs or full risk ACOs do beautifully is to manage with a team approach, behavior health, OC health, with constant contact with nurses, wearables. There's a beautiful way to deal with chronic care and actually not only manage it, but actually reverse it. And I think that's going to be the next trend we'll see is companies like Verta Health. Actually, they came out today with a five-year study, the largest of its kind that type 2 diabetes is reversible. Yeah. And... The two-year study I saw said 93% of their cohort, but it might be less after three more years later. But it, you can, you're not, you're no longer just managing, you're reversing with lifestyle management, chronic disease, which is huge for employers. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think the issue is, as you had described, we we have a system that has perverse incentives. And those perverse incentives are we have a healthcare system that everybody downstream makes revenues off people that are sick and need medical services. We really don't pay very well for actually a healthcare system of how do we keep people healthy and well? How do we keep people healthy and well so they're not train wrecks when they're seniors? And I, and I think if we, we, you know, it's absolutely critical that we change the reimbursement models so that we're paying for health and not paying for sickness. Let's talk about the Mount Everest, the ideal, because I'm going to get these initials wrong, but you'll correct me. I think PBGH is one of the bigger alliances in the West Coast. Yeah. They are doing a lot of brain trust work. When y'all get together as a group, all of y'all, do you have any other brain trusts that help you see with clarity what would be the ideal plan if employers could shoot for a model that they could eventually get to? Like, what does the finish line look like if you said, what is a perfect plan? And I, I know you let off with, you know, every employer's, you're meeting a new employer, but there's got to be some ideal that folks can say, you know what, if we had this, this, and this, those core elements are going to give us the maximum outcomes, the lowest cost with the least noise. Okay. Yeah. Um... Geez, you know, that, literally that's that's the, the million dollar, if not billion, if not trillion dollar question. Yes. Yes. A starting point, the thing I am most excited about is I don't know if you've been following a lot of the work that's being done recently by a different purchasing alliance, Indiana, but they've there's been the RAND study recently over the last three that they're RAND 4.0. There's been some work done by Marilyn Bartlett at the Na National Academy of State Health Plans. And it just got released in a tool that, that is now public. Anybody can go to, and it's called SAGE. And it really starts to look at and debunking some of the myths and mysteries about how do we pay for healthcare. And to answer your question, where our beginning point, I think, becomes you know, Medicare reimburses hospitals, presumably at cost. It is the Medicare cost report. Every hospital fills out. It's unique for each hospital. They get reimbursed that. We as commercial payers, the, the individual market and commercial payers across the country, we're paying about 250% of Medicare. So if it costs a hospital $10,000 to produce a, a, a procedure, most of us are paying at 250% of Medicare, 25,000 for that. But it varies remarkably. In our state, we have some hospitals that are getting reimbursed at 200% of Medicare. We have some getting reimbursed at 400% of Medicare. And now the data is starting to show those differences between those hospitals have nothing to do with payer mix. It's not related to Medicare, Medicaid payments. It's not related to the charity care. It's not related to sicker populations. It's related to their ability to negotiate better rates in the marketplaces that they're in. But in our state for a procedure that costs 10,000 at one of the hospitals, you can pay 20. At another hospital, you may pay 40,000 for that. And you think about the impact on the consumer or the patient. You know, if they have a $10,000 deductible, that's material. It's a parity issue. The NASHP tool measures what the hospital's break-even points are, and those hospitals in Maine all have about the same cost to deliver that care. So the difference in price is all margin. So my ideal state is 
And I, and I think it's going to be remarkable because the Consolidated Appropriations Act is now making plan sponsors, employers, responsible for paying only fair and reasonable prices for our hospital services. So if in the courts are starting to say 200% of Medicare is fair and reasonable, most hospitals, there are a lot of hospitals are getting paid less than 200% of Medicare that are profitable. So the ideal state for me is complete transparency that we should base you know, reimbursements to hospitals, not on what their market leverage can get, but what's a fair and reasonable price that they can keep their doors open, be efficient, and, and, you know, and deliver the services that we need in the community. And you can't do that through opaque pricing. There's no other consumers you and I, can, consumer goods you and I consume where we can go to the hospital and walk out with a $500,000 bill. We can't even find out what a procedure is gonna cost us before we go in. So for me in an ideal state, we should have the same level of consumer protection rights that we have for every other good. We should be able to see what hospital prices are and that's starting to happen. But more importantly, from a reimbursement perspective, we should index reimbursements to hospital to what the, the Medicare cost reports or some other index shows. That's, that's one. Two, we need to think about, you know, the network in that case, if, if you actually started paying providers similarly across regions, um, it, it's a fairer way to pay providers. There's more parity and fairness. But two, you also start thinking about, do you really need these networks that the carriers have that they're charging employees 15 to $20 per employee per month to lease and you have to go to that network. If you get this complete transparency and reimbursement, you don't need networks. You can let, you can let patients go to where they wanna go. You know you're gonna pay a fair and reasonable price for the services. And then you can start finding ways to direct those patients to who the highest quality providers are. So that, those are two critical pieces for me, the, the payment reform, complete transparency around pricing, and really start to get rid of some of the limitations that get between the patient and the physician that's providing the care. You lead me to my very next question, Peter, which is I do not get compensated by anybody I mentioned on this show. I have no sponsors on purpose. I don't have any special deals or arrangements with anybody. So I'm about to name companies like I did at the top of the rant not to promote them, but because they're the biggest out there doing the uh, primary care rollout across the country. But let's talk about surgery because that is a big cost. I want to talk about imaging. I want to talk about medications, labs. We don't have to talk about because they're you pay cash, get the same price across the country. But surgery, I've had guests on the show, Santa surgery. They work only with jumbos. They've got 600 surgery centers that are all independently owned that have pricing substantially below the facility fee rates of hospitals. We have had three free market centers. So you, somebody from Maine would have to fly to Indiana, to Texas, California. There's a couple of dozen around the country. A surgery Center of Oklahoma is the original gangster, the OG. But a friend of mine needed a hip, total hip replacement. She's the senior HR person at a 2000 employee company in Austin. And the prices went anywhere from free market surgery from 14,000 all in to 22,000 all in at the surgeries, free market surgery centers, I called. I talked to the CEOs of those companies on my show, and they all told me a hip replacement, total hip replacement would be 
120 to 180 in that range versus 14 to 22,000. Do purchasing alliances tap into this free market surgery movement or is it, are they sort of nervous about it or uncomfortable with it or what's going on there? Why there's not a match between the two? Oh, I think there are. And actually, you know, like my prior hat, I told you about where I was director of benefits of a supermarket chain about 15 years ago. I actually spent some time in Europe, spent some time in Singapore. Mm -hmm. We actually put in place a benefit design at that point in time when, when hips replacements and knee replacements were $100,000 here, you could get them done in Singapore for $10,000 and they would be guaranteed, warranted for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put that in place, but in Maine, I mean, there's, there's, you know, some of, some of you mentioned, but there is a startup out of California called Carom Health, mm-hmm. which goes out and they do that. They not only credential the facility that has great results, mm-hmm. they actually go in and credential the individual surgeons. I mean, there's, there's a facility in Maine that if you look at the results that's available, they'll say they have about a, above average outcomes. If you actually look at the, 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 half dozen or so surgeons they have, there are huge differences in the outcomes by surgeon. So they actually will go in and say, you know, this is a center of excellence, but only Dr. Jones and Dr. Smith can perform where they do it. What they've found is for hips and knees, about 23% of the time, the procedures don't need to be done. For spines, it's much more like 40% of the time. Rand did a study of this. It's publicly available they found that the actual cost is about 45% less than um, what you're currently paying through commercial insurers. Those numbers are right. We took a look, the state of Maine here actually put it in place. It's been in place for three years. Um, they have a net promoter score, which is the patient satisfaction that was like 98. It's a much wow. better patient experience. Basically perfect. It is starting to take off and they're starting to tap into that. I think there's fierce resistance from the entrenched stakeholders that are in the marketplace. Of course. But the, those are the types of things that are taken. They have actually, it went from originally, and it's a great thing for the patient because it, it had been voluntary. If you do it, you don't pay anything out of your pocket as a patient. The deductibles are waived, the co-pays are waived, they pay mm-hmm. travel for you to go. They are now moving up for it being mandatory instead of it being, you know, Walmart's been doing it and it's the, the model's been, if you go, you know, we'll waive all these costs, but if you don't go, you can still go back to your plan. That's changing. So that is really starting to catch on. All of those things you described, I think, are the wave of the future. Imaging has two problems. One of them is facility fees I mentioned earlier, but there are 1,700 imaging centers that are all rounded up under green imaging and some of their competitors who can now get any kind of imaging done, sophisticated, unsophisticated for 20 to 40% of the cost of the hospitals. And then the second equation of that is, how do you know you're getting the right radiologist to do the read? Because apparently misreads are a little bit of a problem in radiology. So yeah, Ron Vianu started Cavera Health. He's got a Walmart as a client and Cavera is now making sure that the right radiologist yeah. sees the right read at the right patient. And so there's not a gigantic Titanic going for London when it should be going for Iceland because they got a wrong diagnostic on the front end. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that, I mean, and it's, you know, it's really funny in, in our marketplace, which is not that probably dissimilar than others. We have a freestanding image center that if you actually could go to get an image when it's being run as the free center, it, it is about 25% of the price of in the afternoon 
one of the local health systems that leases out the same radiologist in the same machine in the same facility and, and they charge about four times more and they're shameless they don't really they don't care they don't care so we talked about imaging we talked about surgery medications is a gigantic low-hanging fruit the brokers who appeared on my show tell me what is the perfect world in your worldview peter for purchasing pharmacy at pennies a pill versus ridiculous prices of pill and getting a higher quality formulary instead of a bunch of junk meds that we all know don't belong on a typical formulary. What is your worldview on medications? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it is, it is a quagmire and, and I totally agree with you. So going back to our entity, we put in place the center of excellence that I just described. Mm -hmm. We recognize, and there's lots of evidence out there that says, suggests that as much as 50 cents on the dollar for what you and I and everybody else are paying for prescription drugs are all going to intermediaries. It is all margin for somebody, 50 cents on the dollar. So mm -hmm. one solution that's the easiest is to introduce what are called transparent PBMs, which means there, there's, there's lots of different ways the PBMs are making money. One of the ways is, you know, if, if you go down to the local supermarket and fill your script, you know, the, the PBM, you know, name one of the big four might be paying that pharmacy a dollar for the ingredients for that script. They'll charge the plan sponsor, it's called spread, but it may be as much as seven or $8. But if you go to a transparent PBM, that all that means is that they completely disclose to you where their revenue comes from, which is usually a, a per script fee. If they pay the pharmacy a dollar, you get charged a dollar. So they take the spread out of it. The other game you're talking about is, is the rebate game, yes. where as much as 25 to 30% of your drug spend, there are rebate dollars that are coming back somewhere. And PBMs will tell you employers are getting 100% of it back, but they're doing lots of games behind the scenes to how they classify rebates and other things. But We've put a couple, there are, there are several transparent PBMs that are out there in their models. We put it in place. We did start to save our employers about 40 to 50 cents on the dollar. So you, you just need to think about a different model, the, the new Transparency Acts, the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Um, you know, there's, they have to disclose, brokers have to disclose if they're making any revenues off scripts, believe it or not. Some brokers are getting paid up to $10 for every single script written as part of their compensation that hmm. most employers don't know about. Well, I think we've got a uh, better than a PBM we had as a guest on our show. And he called me when they only had three states approved, but Scriptco in here in Texas has their average fill is about four pennies a pill. Now they only do generics. They don't do specialty. They only do brand drugs because they can switch most to generic, but for $140 annual fee, which is, the cost of a Spotify account, a heavy medication user has access now to a formulary that's one to four pennies a pill on average. But uh, that's, I think that's actually better than a PBM because you don't need anybody to manage anything when costs are at wholesale. I don't know if you've seen, but, it, but, but I think the statistic is good RX for about 70% of the time, patients that have a drug card from the traditional PBMs are better off paying cash using good RX than they are going through their drug card. Absolutely. That, that speaks volumes about where the dollars are going. Well, we've covered everything but specialists, and that's a tricky area in, from my worldview, uh, 
doing this show, I can't find large groups of specialists that you can contract with for cash very easily. Do you have any problem finding, I mean, there's 120 different specialties. Do you have trouble finding cash pay specialists in Maine? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think the problem becomes in Maine, especially because of our, you know, the economics of the state, a lot of a lot of people just aren't in the you know can't afford patients can't afford to pay cash um what we're finding with the specialist is you know and again especially under some of these you know reference-based models it, it's not necessarily what the specialists are being paid what the problem is is that a lot of care that the specialist might be delivering is not necessary or appropriate and, and so we think a way getting access to specialists isn't isn't an issue. What we really think the value of some of the models you were talking about, advanced primary care, is that you know you can you can take care of a lot of the inappropriate care that goes to the specialist, and, and really try to focus on on getting the right care to the specialist. That 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 probably is is that's not where the dollars are. I mean the the, the real dollars are in. If you look at hospital prices over the last decade, hospital price increases, it, utilization is relatively flat. Mm -hmm. It is hospital prices that are driving the, the, the cost trend. Yeah, that's fair enough. Are there some employers in the country that you admire because they are at the top of Mount Everest doing the right things in all of the right categories? Anybody that jumps out in your mind? You know, I, I'll probably offend a whole bunch of my <laughs> colleagues. I mean, there's, there's, you know, and the problem becomes, you know, just like governments local, there's, there's lots of different reasons in different markets. What I have, have been impressed by is Walmart really has done some innovative things. They are yeah. one of the early ones that have latched on to centers of excellence. You mentioned radiology. They are one of the early adopters of Cavera Health that you mentioned. Yes. Um, they are using Embold Health to really create, you know, that steerage we just talked about to the appropriate specialists. They are really trying to identify who are the really high quality primary care docs and specialists in driving their members there. So for an entity like that, I, and then they're, as you said at the top, they're also trying to enter the healthcare space and bring some of their logistics and stuff to bear. So I, I think I am interested in that. I'm also interested in some of the things Amazon is doing at trying to disrupt the normal flow. I mean, they're looking at primary care, they're looking at distribution channels, they're actually looking at the prescription drug distribution channels. So I think, you know, along those lines, those are the things I'm intrigued by. I'm also intrigued by some of the earlier adopters of, you know, the advanced, the, the primary care entities that are starting to take capitated risk, like Vera Health and some of the others you mentioned. Amazon's had to respond because they weren't allowed into the national database system to uh, play ball with the other PBMs. They didn't want Amazon in the club. Walmart did something interesting. In 2019, they announced a billion in savings, which means they didn't have to open up 1,453 stores by my count, if you look at their margins. So a billion dropped to the bottom line at a 3% margin is a lot of revenue you don't have to go out and chase anymore. Yeah, That's really exciting about healthcare savings in your world is that every time someone saves a dollar, a 10% margin, that's $10 they don't have to go out and grow the market by. So 
So we're talking about significant money, billion dollars. I didn't know what they were going to do with it. And then I, they announced this year and about four or five, six months ago that they're going to pay for college tuition or post high school for any Walmart partner, full boat. They're going to take care of everything. And I don't know who qualifies if 10 people qualify or all million plus of their partners do qualify, but that's a cool way to spend the money, but they've dedicated a quarter of a million dollars a year, quarter of a billion dollars a year, pardon me, to college tuition so they can grow their company from within organically as opposed to have to go out and hire college grads. They want their own floor managers to become college grads. It's very cool. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, and, and actually I have this slide, it was actually done by the state of Massachusetts, but there's lots of evidence now that the social determinants of health, things like access to adequate transportation and food and public health and those types of things, actually may be more predictive of downstream costs or more preventative of downstream costs than the lifestyle things we chase. Mm -hmm. And Mass came up with this, it, it, we're in this death spiral as healthcare consumes more and more of the employee's benefit stream. Mm -hmm. Walmart's a great example of that. And the Wall Street Journal's in the last decade, 95% of wage stagnation has been caused by the increase in healthcare costs. If you, and so in mass, as more health dollars have gone into healthcare, they're pulling dollars from public health and all the things that we should be investing in, education, like you mentioned with Walmart. I think some employers are really beginning to think that if, if you do pull some of these dollars out, you can plow them back into your employee workforce and the workplace culture. So I, that's, that's an interesting dynamic and an interesting change that we're beginning to realize, you know, there's not an unlimited amount of resources to continue to fuel double digit health increases, especially when if we were getting superior health outcomes compared to the rest of the world, we're actual life expectancy in the US is declining while all the other industrialized countries we're competing against is increasing, but we're spending four, three to four times more per capita. We're ranked between Slovenia and Costa Rica. I saw last I saw in our last rating. Yeah. To close this out and honor your time, and I appreciate what you coming back and we got a much clearer view of what you do and what your ideal plan looks like. Like if I had to give an Academy Award, I'd probably give it to the NUCA system in Alaska because they got a very high chronic case with Native Americans there and they're doing a beautiful job at half the cost. But then I would also take Rosen Hotels yep. and they have literally reversed, as you know, gangs are non-existent in the school districts surrounding it. And they've just adopted a much bigger school district. I would take employers like that that have plowed their money back into their community yes. and done a miracle, just literally a miracle, literally a complete turnaround from every other Native American tribe, every other city in America, nobody has Worsening crime with healthcare savings. No, I totally agree. Those are those are great examples. And yeah, they're they're hopefully we're on a pathway to do a lot more of those. Well, you're a pretty good looking guy. If we have an Academy Award for companies like that, I would like you to uh, you know make sure you hand out the award to those yeah. companies like that. So it's not too late to start our own Academy Awards for healthcare savings. Hey, maybe we'll have a ton of candidates. That would be great. <laughs> That'd be fun. Hey, Peter, thanks again. Is there a best way to reach you if they want to join your alliance or learn more? Just, you know, just a healthcare purchase alliance of Maine. Just Google it and that's where you find us. Okay. Thank you again for your time. No, thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, 
go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.